morning. And as I was looking and reading this week and walking through the week before Easter, one of the things that really struck me in the gospel was Christ's compassion. You know, he knew what was coming. He knew what he was facing. And yet he focused so much on the disciples and the needs around him. He knew their pain. He knew what they were thinking. And then ultimately he suffered the most unimaginable pain of being separated from God. And I thought, like, after Good Friday, like, imagine what they felt like on Saturday. Imagine what was going through their minds and how they thought, I have no hope. And what has happened? Where am I going? What happens from here? And yet, Sunday morning, everything changed forever. So I want to remind you, whatever's going through your mind or what's going on in your life, Sunday is coming. S-O-N, Sunday is coming. So if you'll bow with me in prayer. Dear God, like the disciples, we've all had questions. We have tough times. We've dealt with fear, anxiety, worry, wondering. We've also had amazing views of your glory and your power and your honor. I wonder how it felt to stand by and watch you die for me. We rejoice with the disciples in finding the empty grave that morning so long ago. Our eyes lift to heaven in total adoration of the one true God you are. Your incredible love for me, for the world, exceeds our imagination, and your gracious gift of life goes beyond our understanding. When I reflect on the cross of Calvary, my mind can't grasp the depth of the darkness, the day that you had to turn your back on your own son as he bore my sin and the sin of the world. For everyone who's ever been born, The price was so great, yet his blood poured out to yield the highest return of investment that anybody's ever known. So death, where is your sting? Where is your victory, O grave? It's extinguished. The grave has been conquered, and we celebrate the empty tomb. He is risen, and we praise you, Father. Thank you. The children are dismissed for Sunday school. Good morning. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, in the Pew Bible in front of you, that's page 756. Page 756. Ryan, reach with your right hand. There you go. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, that Pew Bible, you can take it home. That's our gift to you. We want you to have the Word of God in your hands. But if you take it, you got to read it. All right. 
I want to preach the gospel to you just for a minute before I get into the Bible passage. We've, we've sang a lot of songs here this morning about chains being broken, people being set free, people being forgiven. And I just want to make sure that you know what that's about. You've probably heard the story. You know the story about God making a man and woman and putting them in a garden. And they were in the garden and everything was hunky-dory. And they were strutting around in all their glory. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> they didn't have to wear a tie. And then there's a snake that comes in. And the snake tells a lie. And the woman, the Bible more or less says, was deceived. She wasn't of bad intention, but she was tricked. Have you ever been tricked? Have you ever believed somebody when they told you a lie, a bald-faced lie? And your heart was really in the right place, but you got deceived. She got deceived. Her husband, on the other hand, it doesn't say he was deceived. It puts a lot of guilt on him. You know, she ate the apple first, and then she gave it to him. And oftentimes we'll think that she's the one that really did open the whole thing up. But the rest of the Bible really blames him. They blame him. And we, this original sin and all this stuff, we, we, we say we got that from Adam. We didn't get that from Eve. She was tricked. He knew what he was doing. And ever since that, ever since that, people have been rebelling against God. Eating the apple was, was the rebellion. It was that initial rebellion when people said, you know what, God, you said, you said there was freedom here. You gave us only one parameter, one thing that was off limits. So therefore, that's the one thing I'm going to do. And ever since then, human beings have been doing exactly the same thing. Except now, we have to have a lot more parameters. We have to have a lot more rules. There there are quite a few rules in the Bible, and people talk about all the rules that are in the Old Testament, something like 630 of them. Does that sound like a lot? I would... I would invite you to go down to your town hall and say, I'd like a list of all the laws in this town. I'll bet there's more than 630. And I'll, bet you, I'll invite you to go to Augusta and find out how many laws, state laws are there in the state. I'll bet there's more than 630. And then I'll invite you to go to Washington, D.C. And you'll be there for the rest of your life trying to count them all. Right? We think of God's law as being very restrictive. 630 laws, good grief. You are governed by many more than that in your daily life. But we continuously seek to break laws. And, okay, let's, talk, let's stop talking about it as in uh, breaking law. Let's talk about it as in being good, being moral, being the kind of person that you know you want to be. In your heart, you believe you're a good person, probably. In your heart, you have a morality, And in your heart, you also know that, forget God's laws, I can't even live up to my own standards. I fail myself all the time. There are things I want in my own life. There's a person I want to be, and I can't be that person, let alone, we're not even talking about the person God wants you to be, the person you want to be. You can't even live up to that standard. And then there are things that you know are killing you, things you want to stop, behaviors, patterns, habits, addictions, whatever, things that you know are killing you. 
but it's like a chain wrapped around you, and you can't get rid of it. The good news is, ever since that first chain was placed on Adam and Eve, ever since that first time when they felt guilt and knew that they were bad deep down into their heart, ever since uh, they knew that they weren't living up and being the kind of moral person that they thought that they would be, God has been in the business of redeeming, saving, rescuing, setting free, forgiving all of us. He's been in that business ever since then. He's been in the business of even covering up our shame. What did he do? Adam and Eve ate the fruit. They knew they were naked. They felt ashamed. They put fig leaves around themselves. And uh, how, how, how well do you think fig leaves cover? Not very well. And so what did God do? I invite you to read the story. He killed an animal, an animal that just a few days before Adam had named, an animal that just a few days before had been created, and God called it good. God took an animal, and he killed it. He shed its blood, and he fashioned together some clothing and said, here, wear this. It's much better than fig leaves. It'll last longer. It covers you better. I know there's blood on it, but it covers you better. Ever since we sinned, ever since we felt that first guilt, ever since we got that first chain around our leg, God has been in the business of redeeming, forgiving, and setting free. And so he created a system, all right? When you read on through the Old Testament, you get into the book of Exodus, you find out that God has created a system, a very elaborate system. You have to build this kind of a building, this kind of an altar, these kinds of animals, they all have to be brought up here. And just like that first time in the garden, something has to shed its blood. That's the only way that sins get forgiven. Something has to shed its blood. Something innocent, something perfect has to have its blood shed. And then I will take its innocence and I'll put it on you and cover up your shame and your guilt. And so here we come in the Old Testament. Every single morning, every single evening, a sacrifice is given. Every time anybody knows that they've done something that they ought not to, every time they've broken a parameter, every time that they've um, stepped outside the bounds, every time that they feel guilt, every time that they've done something that made them unclean, they bring an animal. And it's either uh, a cow or a sheep or a pigeon, and that animal will shed its blood, and then I'm okay. Me and God, everything's restored here. We're, we're, we're back, we're fine again. I'm, I'm the chosen, I'm part of the chosen people again. I'm one of God's. Okay, Whew. and all of that pointed to something else because God doesn't look at a pigeon and say that equals a human, okay? Birds are nice, sheep are nice, cows are nice. I like them a lot. But when God created people, he put his image on them and he said, uh, this one doesn't equal this one, but I've got a plan. And one of these days, I'm going to send a person, but not just a person. What did we say last week? He's 100% man. He's also 100% God. Jesus isn't, he's not 50% God, 50% man. He's not half and half. He's full and full, 100% and 100%. He's a 200% person, fully God and fully man. And he comes to earth. And what is the first testimony that we hear about him from John the Baptist? Look. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
there he is. All the other sheep that have ever been sacrificed, all the bulls, all the heifers, all the pigeons, the doves, everything that's ever been sacrificed was actually pointing to him. He's the Lamb of God. We have, uh, we have sacrificed thousands and millions of animals to get ourselves right with God. But he's the one who will finally finish the job. And it is his shed blood on the cross that, what does it do? What, what do we sing about? It forgives every sin. It breaks every chain. It changes the heart. Because a sheep dying for me, that's nice. A sheep's heart and a human heart, it's not the same thing. The one heart can't replace the other heart, can't change the other heart. No. Only Jesus' shed blood could count for me. It's interesting that a sheep couldn't count for me, but Jesus can count for us. Do you see the value? Hundreds of thousands of animals sacrificed for sin really couldn't even redeem a whole person. But Jesus comes and his blood, his life spilled, spilled out, given, is so precious that how many billions can his blood be applied to and now they are forgiven? There's seven billion people on the, on the earth right now. I don't know how many people have ever existed and I don't know how many people will ever exist in the future. But I know that Jesus' blood, how many pints are in a, how many pints of blood does a human have? A lot. <laughs> if you split it 12 billion ways, then not very much. But it doesn't take much of the precious blood of Jesus to completely remake the whole person. And so what does Jesus say then? What do we believe? How, do you, how am I to be saved? How am I to be forgiven? Just believe. Just confess. Just ask, and the forgiveness will be yours. And you say, Wes, that's too easy. Surely there are a lot of things I need to do, a lot of money I need to give, a lot of penance to be done. And I say to you, no. For you, you believe, you confess, you ask, and it is done. You say, Wes, that's too easy. And I say, ask Jesus if it was easy. You're not saved by your works. You are saved by works, but not yours. You are saved by his work. And I, I invite you to ask Jesus, was that easy work? No, it was not easy work. It was painful work. He was on the cross for six hours, but he had been suffering before then. He had had a whole rough night. He had prayed so hard the night before that he sweat blood. His capillaries were bursting. That's how much emotional pain, uh, uh, how much stress he was going through. And then he was mocked, and then he was beaten, made sport of, and then crucified. It's not easy work. It is hard work for, to be saved. You're, the Bible says we're barely saved, just barely. It just barely happened for us. It was touch and go there, except that God's plans are never touch and go. It was hard work, but it wasn't your work. It was his work. And so now all you have to do is believe. I believe that I don't have to work for it. I believe that my work is nothing. I believe that my work won't accomplish anything. I could work, but it won't do anything. 
I believe that his sacrifice is all that it takes. I believe that his blood is so precious that all my sins get forgiven when it's applied to me. I believe that. Do you believe that? That's all it takes for you to have every chain broken, be set free, be forgiven, and have your relationship with God restored again. That's it. Will you believe that? Now let's get into our text. So Jesus is crucified. And it's very easy for us. Uh, if you got on Facebook this week, you saw some stuff on, on Good Friday. And how many of you saw the words, but Sunday's coming? Did you see that? But Sunday's coming. Hindsight is wonderful, isn't it? Let's read this morning about some people who didn't have Facebook pages, who didn't have hindsight, and who didn't know Sunday was coming. John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but uh, he did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that, uh, these thing, uh, she told them that he had said these things to her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us. Lord, help us to have faith and to believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I love this passage. I love every, uh, every story of the resurrection because it just gives so much, uh, there's so much humanness in it. There's so much humanness in it. Uh, when you see them, you see that they absolutely had no idea that this was about to happen. Even when it did happen, many of them doubted that it had happened. It took uh, a personal visitation for them to all, um, <clears throat> excuse me, come up and believe. And I don't blame them. It would have happened to me too. We've been talking this last few weeks about Jesus being on display. So on Palm Sunday, he's on display in a glorious way. He comes into Jerusalem to a lot of fanfare. Um, 
all, all his huge entourage that had come with him from Galilee were all coming with him into the city, and it was a glorious, glorious day. Um, but then the next week, it, it's, it's very different. It's, it's the day of the crucifixion. They come and they arrest him in the garden. They take him uh, to a couple of different places to have him tried by a couple of different people. Uh, Herod, one of the Herods even, he wasn't really trying him. You know, He was tried by the Sanhedrin. He was tried by Pontius Pilate. Herod just wanted to see him. He just wanted, you know, he just wanted to say, hey, I've heard about this guy. I want to see, him. maybe he'll do a magic trick for me. I've heard he can do some magic tricks. All right? And he's on display everywhere he goes. And he's getting mocked and disrespected everywhere he goes. And every once in a while, they'll ask him a question. Are you the son of God? Yes, I am. Oh, blasphemy. Or they'll ask him a question or ask him to do something, and he'll just stay quiet. And they'll slap him for it. If he speaks and he speaks the truth, he gets mocked, he gets slapped. If he stays silent, he gets slapped. There's no winning when they're against you like that. Thank you, Richard. <clears throat> and then he's on display in the, in the praetorium with all the soldiers. Soldiers that, hey, soldiers, they know a thing, about, um, a thing or two about respect, right? They know a thing or two about commanding officers. They know when to stand at attention. But here, when it's Jesus, they're terribly disrespectful. Terribly disrespectful. Because they don't believe. But he's the king of kings. He's the highest rank they'll ever meet. And yet, they're making mockery of him. And then after that, he goes and he's really put on display, hanging on the cross for the whole city to see, for people on the highway to, to pass by and say, oh, look at them, look at those guys. Look at, oh, those poor guys, they're all, being, they're all being crucified today. And then they look at the charge above Jesus, the king of the Jews, and they'll say, wow, wow, this is what happens to the king of the Jews, huh? This is how much the king of the Jews is respected. Incredible. He's on display like that. And for us, when we look at that, we say, it's the most glorious hour. It all depends on how you look at it. What was he doing there? Was he just a victim that was dying? Was he just a dying man? Was he some upstart who said a few, who, who just kind of got too big for his britches and so they killed him for it? Or was he the Lamb of God who was actually taking away the sin of the world? If you view it that way, then you look and you say, what a glorious sacrifice that's being made. It's his finest hour. He's dying the hero's death, the great hero's death. Every movie you've ever watched where the hero gave their life to save all the people, it all is just a, a, a cheap representation of this. This is, the, this is the story. This is the great story. Every other story is just sort of borrowing from it. No, no, no. This is the story. This is the Savior who saved not just a few people, but everyone who would ever believe. And then they laid him in the tomb. And his greatest display is coming. His greatest display is coming, the resurrection. But they don't know about it. And so what took Mary to the tomb that day? It's a very interesting question to me. What took her uh, to the tomb that day? And why is she the only one? Or actually, if you read some of the other gospels, it looks like a group of women is going. But in, in, in John, he only talks about Mary, Mary Magdalene. She's going to the tomb that day. What brought her to the tomb that day? Was she expecting resurrection? Absolutely not. Do you go to tombs from time to time? Are there people who have passed on that you, you visit their tomb? Yes, you do. What draws you to the tomb? What draws you to the graveside? Love. Love. 
We don't know a whole lot about Mary Magdalene, but we know that she was a very sinful woman. We know that she had a whole bunch of demons inside of her and Jesus cast them out. And we know that she had been forgiven much. And we also know that Jesus said, those who've been forgiven much, what do they do? They love much. Those who've been forgiven much, love much. She had experienced that breakage of bondage. I mean, she's possessed by seven demons, okay? How much, how much more bondage can there be? She's got sin in her life that she cannot get rid of. She's got shame and disgrace in her life. Nobody else will receive her. He will receive her and treat her with dignity. And so she's been forgiven much. And she loves much. She loves much. And so why did she go to the tomb that day? Because she loved this man because of all that he had done for her. And so she goes there. She goes there. And what does she find? Oh, my. And she doesn't know. Remember, we all know. It's all hindsight for us. For her, they've taken him. And she doesn't even know who the they are. Maybe it's the Roman soldiers who were guarding the tomb. Maybe it's the, um, the Jewish leaders that had um, been party to the crucifixion. Maybe they had taken him away. We have absolutely no idea where the, who they are or where they have taken him. But now, she doesn't even have a place to go weep anymore. And she runs back and she tells everybody, They've taken him, have absolutely no idea where he is. And so uh, it's, a, it's a very, it's, it, John, when he writes his gospel, he gives you details that are, uh, you might say superfluous. They're just really not necessary, uh, except that what, what it means is for John, this was so real and he remembers all the details that day. Um, and and it, it really gives to me credibility to his whole gospel. Uh, in, in John chapter 21, just, just an example of superfluous details. In John chapter 21, uh, Jesus meets some guys who are fishing. And do you remember how many fish they caught? John did. 153. I'm, I'm sure that's right. 153. And people have tried to allegorize or try to figure out what is the symbolic meaning of 153. And I heard a great Bible teacher one time say, it doesn't mean anything. Any fisherman out there knows exactly how many caught any day he went fishing. Isn't that right? You ask any guy who's come home from fishing, how many did you catch? Spits out a number immediately because we always remember how many fish we caught that day. John's writing this 70 years later. He still remembers how many fish they caught that day. And he certainly remembers the resurrection morning. He remembers. We heard, we heard noise at the gate. So we got up. And it was Mary. And here we are. We haven't slept in a while. We don't know what's going on. We're scared to death. We think we may be next for the crucifixion. And then Mary comes and says, they've taken his body. We have no idea where he is. And so here's an interesting detail. John runs faster than Peter. He's faster than Peter, okay? So Peter and John, they get up and they run. They run as fast as they can. Both of them running as fast as they can. But one of them runs faster than the other. But John is young, okay? John's young, all right? Younger people run faster, fine, okay? He's probably 10 years younger than Peter. But he doesn't go in the tomb. He's just a teenager. He doesn't have permission, okay? When you're a kid, you, you, you don't know when you're gonna cross a boundary or a rule or break a rule or something like that. So he, so he gets to the tomb and he just kind of looks in. I'm not allowed to go in. But Peter, Peter goes right in. And it just doesn't add up. Because if they'd have stolen his body, the strips of linen would have gone with him. They wouldn't unwrap him 
and take him somewhere else, would they? No. And the, the thing around his head is folded. Something's just not adding up here. Peter doesn't know. But John, and John's called the disciple that Jesus loved, right? Did Jesus love all of his disciples? I think so. So what does that even mean, the disciple that Jesus loved? I just think that Jesus had special affection for John. He's the kid. He's the kid. We've got a whole bunch of other disciples here, but then we got the kid. And the kid's great. And the kid sticks with Jesus. And I just see, you know, this kind of a relationship between, between Jesus and John. At the Last Supper, uh, where, is, where is John? He's leaning against Jesus. There's that kind of affection, that kind of youth right there, leaning up against him. They had a special relationship. And the disciple that Jesus loved, when he goes into the tomb behind Peter, because Peter's the leader, they look at all the, the evidence and they say, I don't know what happened here. And Peter turns to go. Peter doesn't have a lot of optimism, I don't think, at this point, because if Jesus is alive, uh, Peter's got some reckoning to face because he had denied Jesus in that, that critical hour. But John, what does it say? He saw and he believed. And I don't know what he believed. And, and it says, we didn't know from the scriptures. There was nothing scriptural that, I could, that he could point to about any of this. But he said in his heart, this is a strange turn of events. And I think Jesus is behind it. So John starts believing. And they go back home. And there's Mary. She was, she was behind them. She didn't run as fast as either one of them. But she came back. And she's sitting outside the tomb. And when they come out, she says, what do you think? What do you think? And they both just shake their heads and go back home. I have no idea. And so what does she do? She knows that Jesus isn't back home. She doesn't know where they've put him. So she just sits down right there. Where else am I going to go? I've got nowhere else to go to. This is the last place I saw him. This is where I'm going to stay. And then she says, well, they looked in the tomb. Maybe I'll look in there too. And she saw something they didn't see. They, she saw some messengers, some angels. And they said, and I, I love it, every single gospel, why are you crying? Why are you crying? Why are you crying? Are you kidding me? But for them, for the angels, and I think for Jesus too, because that's the same thing he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Why are you crying? What's got you so upset? When Jesus asks a question to anybody, he's not looking for a superficial, uh, terse answer, or just sort of a matter-of-fact information. Anytime God asks you a question, there's something deep in it. Just like in the garden, after Adam and Eve had sinned, they heard God in the garden, walking in the garden, and they were afraid, so they hid themselves. And then what did God ask? Where are you? He knows the answer. So it's got much more meaning than that. Tell me, what have you done with yourself? Where are you spiritually? Where is your heart? Where are you? Give me the honest answer. Okay. And here in this garden, by this tomb, Jesus says, why are you crying? I'd really like to know. I know, but I'd like to hear you say it out loud. Why are you crying? Who are you looking for? What's going on here? 
I want to hear what you think about it. And so she turns to him and she says, and she assumes he's the gardener. She assumes he's the gardener, okay? Fair assumption, they're in a garden. There's somebody there, it's a gardener. Fair assumption, she doesn't look up, she doesn't look in the face, she just says, where have you put him? And I love that. She doesn't say, um, there was a guy that was buried here. She assumes the gardener knows. Where have you put him? What have you done with him? I'm gonna go get him. And I love that she says that. I love that she offers that. And I think that there's just incredible joy in Jesus' heart when she hears that, when he hears that. And then that's when he reveals himself to her. And what did he hear? What did she say? Where have you put him? I'd like to go get him. What was, he, what was she really saying? Because she probably wasn't thinking it through. Where is he? Well, what am I gonna do when I find him? Can I pick him up? No. Can I move him back here? No. Would you let me have him? Probably not. What, am I, what was she planning to do? She didn't have a wheelbarrow or anything like that. What was she exactly? What, she wasn't gonna rewrap him. What was she gonna do? She hadn't thought it all through. Her heart was driving her. Her love was driving her. And all she's saying is, wherever he is, that's where I wanna be. Dead or alive, wherever he is, that's where I wanna be. I wanna be with him. And if he's still dead, I'm just gonna lay down beside him and die right beside him too. I don't know what I'm going to do, but wherever he is, he's the only one that ever made me feel special. He's the only one that ever made me feel like I was created by God for good purposes. And wherever he is, dead or alive, I'm gonna stay right there with him. Her love drove her to him, no matter what state he was in. And then she finds out, oh, it's him, Mary. How do you know my name? Oh my goodness, it's you. I recognize the voice. It's you. And she says, Rabboni, Rabboni, Rabbi, teacher, master, the one I've been following, the one who's given my life meaning and purpose all of these years. It's you. I can't believe it. And he grabs onto her. She grabs onto him, I mean. She grabs onto him. So much that he says, you gotta let me go. And then he tells her, now you need to go tell them. You need to go tell them and see if they'll believe too. Go tell them, see if they'll believe too. Everybody almost, I think in any of the resurrection appearances, everybody hears about it before they see it. They hear about it before they see it and uh, they get to decide, do I believe the testimony or do I, do I not believe the testimony? But you hear about it before you see it in all these instances. Even, even Mary Magdalene, she's the first to see him, but she heard about it from angels, okay? Who are you looking for? She sees angels, you know? In, all, in the other gospels, uh, he has risen just as he said, okay? What am I supposed to do with that? Do I believe it? or do I not believe it? And everybody sort of gets that choice. Do I believe it or do I not believe it? All right. And she believed it and she ran back and she said, I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. All right. What drove her to the tomb that day? It's love. It's love. Her faith had been shaken, just like all the disciples. Their hopes had been dashed. Hers and the disciples, all of them. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love are all at work here. And those are, all, those are the three sentiments of the whole Christian life. 
We have faith in the Lord. The Lord loves us. We love the Lord. And he gives us hope for the future. Faith, hope, and love. They all work together right there. And for Mary Magdalene, her faith has been shaken. Her hopes have been dashed. But what hadn't died? Her love. And her love sent her to the tomb that day to find him. Dead or alive, I'm going to find him. She found him alive. And for the disciples, when they come back, when she comes back, she says, guess what? He's alive. I've seen him. Have faith. Some of them have some faith and some of them don't. But later they get to see him. And for you and me, I haven't seen him. You haven't seen him. We have to believe the testimony, right? If any of us are here are believers, it's not because Jesus came and said, hi, I'm Jesus, you should believe in me. No, it's because somebody testified to us and we believe it. And then we love and then we have hope for the future. And any time that my faith is shaken or my faith is strained or my hopes are dashed or I have any kind of disappointment, I have to rely on my love for the Lord to get me through those hard times. And I hope that your love for the Lord will help you even when your faith is shaken and even when your hopes are dashed. And as a congregation here today, uh, Christianity, this faith that we have, this belief that we have together, it's a corporate thing. It's a community thing because I need you and you need me. Because more than likely, at some point, my faith is gonna be high and yours is gonna be low. And I'll get to remind you of our love for the Lord, and that'll get us through the hard times. Or sometimes my faith is low. Wes, you're the pastor. No, our faith gets low sometimes. Hopes get low. Hopes get dashed sometimes. But our love for the Lord, we can feed off of each other's love for the Lord, and that will help us continue to have faith and continue to have hope for the future. No matter what you're feeling, no matter what kind of love you've got in your heart, no matter what kind of, how much faith you've got in your tank, no matter how much hope you have for the future, let's meet together every Sunday and let's help each other fill up our tanks. Fill up our tanks with hope, fill up our tanks with faith, fill up our tanks with love for the Lord. It'll get us through the hard times. And now that we believe, guess what? One of these days, we'll get to see. We'll get to see. And it'll be an amazing experience. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this day above all days, the day that your love for us showed us that if we have faith in you, then we have all kinds of hope, hope for our future. Help us, Lord, to have that individual love for you, but also, Lord, help us to have a corporate love for you here that gets us through the hard times, that encourages us as we walk this life in faith and as we look together Look forward to the hope that we have with you forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please stand and let me give you a benediction. It's good to see you all here today. Be sure that you shake a few hands on the way out. Be sure that you let your love for the Lord encourage somebody else here to continue having love for the Lord. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You're dismissed. Have a good day.